Yes, we have a campsite over on the west side of the canal, Mr. John H. Piper told me in answer to my question. The only canal of any importance I had ever seen was the Chicago Drainage Canal, smelling frankly of its uses. And in my mind, there formed the distressing picture of a bare stretch of land on a canal bank, dotted with forlorn tents and perhaps a mess shack. Sadly, I prepared for the trip, wondering how such a mistake could have been made by apparently intelligent scout leaders. The next afternoon, we took a steamer across the Sound of Bremerton, a Navy Yard city, and then a stage across the Kitsap County Peninsula. And just at dark, we reached Seabeck. Here, cool wind blew in from an expanse of water whose extent was not apparent. What's this, the ocean, I asked. We had certainly come far enough west from Seattle to reach the Pacific, I thought. And the lapping of sizable waves on the beach and the name of the little port combined to strengthen the impression. Oh no, said Piper with a hearty laugh. This is the canal. So, this was Hood Canal. Five miles wide, a great saltwater arm of the sea. This was the canal on which our camp was located. Thirteen Years of Scout Adventure, Stuart P. Walsh, 1923. Good morning and welcome to this edition of American View on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Ben Dietrich. Good to be with you here on this Tuesday morning. We're coming to you live from our studios in Hillsdale, Michigan at Hillsdale College. So that what you just heard is a preview or just a small segment of episode one of Where All Trails End, Stories of Scouting from the Pacific Northwest. It's a new audio documentary series I've been working on for the last couple months or so, actually. It's a big project. There's going to be five episodes. I encourage you to go online uh, to whereralltrailsend.com. That's www.whereralltrailsend.com. Check it out. Give us a listen. Follow me on Twitter, Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D, for more information as well. Really excited about that project. we got a great story about the moon landing on there and a lot more about the influence scouting has had on the United States. Now I want to go to Victor Davis Hanson. We talked to him on Friday, and, and that's all I have to say about that. He talks about impeachment. Great interview. Here we go. Good morning, and welcome to this edition of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. My name is Ben Dietrich, and I'm here on behalf of Radio Free Hillsdale with Dr. Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Davis Hansen is a senior fellow in military history at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's also a professor emeritus of classics at the California State University at Fresno. He teaches some classes here at Hillsdale College, and he is the author of more than two dozen books, including The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and The Case for Trump. Uh, his books range in topics from ancient Greece to modern America, and we're very excited to have him here. Dr. Hansen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want to ask you first, um, you know, you've written a little bit in American Greatness about what's been happening um, with the impeachment of the president. Uh, do you think that this impeachment effort by the Democrats um, will ultimately benefit them? Or do you think that it could end up backfiring? Well, short term, uh, it's benefiting in the sense that in the last two weeks, Trump's polls have gone down two points on the theory that there's so much uh, – hysteria, anger, rumor, gossip, and that doesn't reflect well on a president. Second, whenever there's a Democratic debate, Trump goes up two points, or whenever he is interviewing foreign leaders, or he's at the UN giving a speech, or he's talking about the economy, his polls go up. That hasn't been happening. And so in that lull, 
he's been hurt, but Nancy Pelosi's sort of jumped the gun and the shark, so to speak, in that she didn't understand that the transcript of the call didn't reveal it to be collusion. The whistleblower's complaint was based on hearsay and four anonymous sources, and it was prepped by a staffer, apparently, or in conjunction with a staffer on the Adam Schiff uh, Intelligence Committee. Adam Schiff was not truthful about his knowledge of it, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm getting at is that when you, you can't impeach a president on hearsay and anonymous sources. So we're at the very beginning of this, and the more we learn about it, whether it's the Schiff story or we learn that um, John Huber and John Durham and Michael Horowitz are going to have their own reports coming out about real collusion with the Ukrainians and the Democratic Party. Likely over the next six months, we've got nine more Democratic debates, and every time we hear them, it's not good uh, for their cause because they've gone way to the left. And we don't, we only know 10% of what Joe Biden uh, and his son Hunter were up to. And we haven't even discussed what they were up to in China when he was on a vice presidential jet and leveraged a billion dollar payout to a company he worked for. So, so it, it's too early to see what's going to happen, but I don't think it's good long-term strategically for Pelosi, especially when they've taken out de facto Joe Biden. You can't mention the word Ukraine without mentioning Biden now, and that hurts him. And he had, in every poll, he had the best uh, prognosis to defeat Trump. And with Bernie Sanders having medical problems, uh, they're going to have one of the hardest left candidates the Democratic Party's ever nominated in Elizabeth Warren. One of the hardest left candidates. That's quite a statement. Um, You know, you mentioned uh, by former Vice President Biden there in your your answer. And it seems as if you're suggesting that what happens with him and what we continue to learn about, you know, whether or not there was corruption there will impact how this um, ultimately plays out for President Trump. Now, President Trump has doubled down on efforts. I think it was yesterday on Thursday. He said uh, to reporters outside the White House that he would encourage the Chinese as well to investigate um, Vice President, former, former Vice President Biden. It seems as if he's willing to say that what he did was not wrong and that, you know, it's yeah, actually well, was something I mean, good. What do you he, think about that? Well, he said during the email scandal with Hillary Clinton, if Putin can find the emails, more power to him. Everybody got upset. So... We know his modus operandi, it's to troll his opponents. So he mentions China, they go hysterical. He mentions Ukraine, they go hysterical. But you have to look what he actually did. So does anybody accusing him, the President of the United States, of telling China, we're going to be doing X, Y, and Z if you do X, Y, no. Even the Ukraine, nobody can find any evidence of quid pro quo. What I'm getting at is during the Russian collusion hoax, People said that he colluded with Russia. And one of the reasons that he was exonerated is when they looked at his attitude toward missile defense or increased sanctions or increased military and NATO spending or the dismantling of reset, uh, they couldn't find anything. In fact, he'd been tougher on Russia than Obama. When you look at Ukraine, and we know now from liberal journalists and political of all places that uh, the Clinton campaign and Obama-era officials colluded with Ukraine to leak stuff about Paul Manafort and the Trump campaign in 2016. So it's 
normal that somebody would be angry and say, go after them, go after them. But he's been treating Ukraine really tough. He's delayed aid. He's been no president in the history of the United States has been harder on China. So for this rhetorical, these rhetorical fireworks to hurt him, then people would have to say, well, he went easy on China. He went easy on Ukraine. He got a concession exchange. But they, that hasn't happened. Right. Now, you also write in the piece, quote, if the economy, in a piece you wrote for American Greatness about this recently, if the economy was in a recession, if we were embroiled in another Iraq-like or Vietnam sort of war, and if Trump's polls were below 40%, the Democrats would just wait 13 months and defeat him at the polls. But without a viable agenda and because they doubt they can stop Trump's re-election bid, they feel they have no recourse but to impeach. What do you, are, are you suggesting here that this is, really not about um, that the president committed wrongdoing, but they just want to get him out of office, so to speak? Well, I'm a historian, so I look at the last, actually, four years, including the campaign. So if you go back, were there three? Were, they sued immediately after the election. They said there were th- voting machines in states that were improper and tampered with. That was false. And then they or, 60 representatives introduced articles impeachment the first week he was in office. That didn't go anywhere. Then they said he had profited under the emoluments clause and should be impeached. His empire lost a billion dollars since he's been president. Then they said he had violated the Logan Act. Nobody's ever been prosecuted for that. That was dropped. Then they said he was unhinged. They actually got a Yale psychiatrist to testify in Congress. He was mentally ill. So he took a cognitive Montreal assessment cognitive test aced it. Then they said that uh, they were going to, they basically had a coup where Andrew McCabe and Rod Rosenstein thought about surveilling the president. And then we had James Comey who leaked confidential memos. Then we had the Mueller investigation, 22 months, $32 million. Then we had Stormy Daniels, that he supposedly made an improper campaign contribution by trying to silence her. Then we had the tax return. And none of this has panned out. So now we're here at impeachment. So what does an empirical, disinterested observer make of all this? And all they can make of it is that it's a incredible frustration that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She outraised Donald Trump three to one. She had the most experienced campaign staff in recent memory. And somebody with neither political or military experience defeated her for president. And they can't get over that. And so now it looks like the same things are going to happen in 2020. All of the experts say Trump can't win. The polls don't have him at 50%. He's rambunctious. He's not disciplined in his public expression. And yet, deep down inside, they think, oh, my God, this guy should not be president. He cannot win. They tell us he can't win. The polls reassure us he can't win. But deep down in my gut, I don't know what those deplorables and irredeemables are going to do. And I'm afraid it's going to happen all over again. And I can't let that happen. And now I'm quoting almost verbatim from people in the Democratic House. Representative Green just the other day said, we've got to impeach him because if we don't impeach him, he just may well be reelected. Wow. Just trying to completely circumvent the, the voices of the American people there. So you wrote the case for Trump, as we mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, many have called it, you know, one of the best defenses of President Trump and what he's done and, or explanations maybe is the, the, the better term for how he came to rise and uh, the way in which he won an election. So many said that he could not win. Where did the anger really start from? Was it simply him getting elected or the, the platform upon which he is 
running on that has caused so many in the left to you know want to stop at nothing really to bring this man down. When Donald Trump got elected, he had switched parties six times in his life, and the Never Trump right, um, you know, George Will, Bill Crystal, David from the rest of them said that he's going to be a liberal. So there wasn't that much anger. The left said, well, he's coming in here. He's a Manhattan bohemian. We knew him. He went to Hillary Clinton's wedding of uh, Chelsea's. And then he started to govern. And even the Heritage Foundation said that at 90 days, his record was far more conservative at a commiserate period in Ronald Reagan's tenure. So then he started outsourcing these judicial picks to conservatives like the Federalist Society. And then he started to deregulate. And then he started to open up ANWR. And then he started to um, renegotiate or drop uh, the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran deal. And systematically, he was not only overturning the Obama legacy, but he was doing it in some cases by the same pen and phone executive orders that Obama had boasted about. And so people thought, wow, he's not only conservative, but he's effectively conservative. And that was one thing that got them mad. And then the left had assumed that George W. Bush or John McCain or Mitt Romney played by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. Attack them, call them a racist, call them a homophobe, misogynist, nativist, xenophobe. And then they have to be reactive. And all of a sudden this guy comes in. Sort of like Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield, an old movie Caddyshack. He's boisterous, he's loud, he pays it back in kind. And they thought, this can't happen. He's, this buffoon is speaking to me at the Council on Foreign Relations at Harvard University, at the head of the DNC, as if he's my equal. How dare he do that? And then when you, the final uh, insult to the injury was, these rallies that he have, he has these people that Hillary Clinton has called deplorables, irredeemables. Uh, John McCain called them the crazies. Joe Biden called them uh, the dregs of society. Barack Obama called them teabaggers. And he said, you know, uh, you got to get in their faces. So there was an idea that where did these people come from? They're the working classes of the interior of the United States were supposed to be uh, addicted, opiate, out of work, still didn't never learn coding, never moved to the coast, just completely irrelevant. And yet they determined the election in these key swing states. So there was anger at them as well. Not necessarily all red states in, in previous recent elections that kind of switched yeah, red. These were not supposed to be swing states. So Michigan had not gone uh, Republican since 1988. Pennsylvania had not gone Republican. Wisconsin had not gone Republican. Ohio was volatile. It had gone Democratic the last two elections. It barely squeaked by. North Carolina was a swing. So Florida. And all of a sudden, Trump comes along and the, the left says, we have stolen Nevada. We have taken Colorado. We have taken New Mexico. These are blue states. California will never elect a Pete Wilson, a Ronald Reagan, a George Mason as governor. We flipped all those states, and it's a no-brainer. We're going to win every election from now on. We have the Obama menu or agenda or matrix. We know how to do it. And Trump comes along like a proverbial fox, and he goes into the hen house. So when Hillary's trying to get a, a uh, vast landslide 
margin in the 2016 election. She's campaigning in Arizona, in Georgia. And she says, you know what? We're going to even go to the heart of the Republican Party and we're going to win those states and we're going to have such a supermajority landslide, we'll have a mandate. Meanwhile, Trump stealthily goes into Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Iowa, and he steals those states. And all of a sudden that causes an existential crisis among the Democrats. How did this happen? And they can't come up with the answer because the answer is, they offended, alienated, ostracized, insulted the white working class of those states. And these people were supposed to be either taken for granted or they didn't vote. They hadn't voted. Four to six million of them had sat out elections. Right. One of the things that I think you talk about, a major theme of your book, um, is this idea that the electorate, in, in many ways, the party system has been realigned to become about a ruling class versus uh, the center of the country. And I think that you have articulated this. We, uh, Senator Josh Hawley has been a big um, speaker on this. He actually spoke at a Hillsdale Constitution Day event in D.C. a couple weeks ago. We were there and we kind of wrote about it. And um, I want to ask you a little bit about the deep state and the, the notion of a ruling class in Washington, D.C. and in our government and how that, that can't even expand you know, beyond just uh, the Democrats, so to speak, but in previous Republican administrations as well. You describe it really well in your book, especially the connections between some of the Obama administration officials and the media. Um, I thought they were quite shocking. You really lay them out well. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what you mean a little bit about the deep state and, and how they feel threatened by President Trump? Well, you start with a the basis. There's about two million state, local, and federal employees, and their first loyalty is to their own tenure. And so they want big government. And any party that suggests they want to cut taxes and shrink government is suspicious. That's what you start with. But what happened with Trump is that culturally, socially, spiritually, he offended people. And what that brought into the nexus was if you're Ben Rhodes and you're working for Obama and you're going out of office, then you say, I'm going to have a shadow government. He gave that press conference. Now, that's maybe understandable, but his brother was head of CBS. And when you start to look at the people in the Obama administration who had siblings that ran ABC or CBS, or when you look at where was George Stephanopoulos before he was a marquee journalist, or who did Chris Wallace work for, or when people leave the Obama administration, where do they go to work? They go to work in Silicon Valley mostly. And you start to see that these power couple marriages in Washington usually involve somebody working in the permanent bureaucratic state at a high level and then another spouse who's an elected official or working for the media or working for Silicon Valley. So when you have Andrew McCabe, to take one example, the deputy FBI director, he's investigating Hillary Clinton to see whether she improperly destroyed emails. Four months earlier, his wife, and he's in the Virginia suburbs, so he's a swamp creature of Washington <laughs> neck, uh, environs. His wife is a recipient of almost $600,000-plus from a Clinton-related pack. How can that be wow. possible? And so then all of a sudden, Loretta Lynch is worried that she has a conflict of interest investigating it, so she says she's going to excuse herself, and what does she do? She ends up meeting with Bill Clinton on a tarmac with two private jets 
There's about 10,000 flights a day of private jets. What are the odds of two private jets meeting on a tarmac in Arizona? And then they can't even tell the truth. And they say that they were talking about their grandkids. And then lo and behold, Clinton is exonerated by, of all people, James Comey. And James Comey is a revolving door bureaucrat that was involved uh, in the Bush administration, a lot of controversial acts. Then we bring in good old Bob Mueller, the professional. He was ball, um, blew the Whitey Bulger. He blew the Sarnay Boston uh, Marathon bombing. Such a big story, though. I mean, the, it just never the, ends. You know, Hillary Clinton met on the tarmac with this person. I mean, and it seems as though some people now, the most recent one, I guess, is James Comey, uh, have very well or very likely done some some wrongdoing and aren't being held responsible for it. Um, you know, they, they just say, oh, well, the evidence is shaky at best. And, you know, the same thing now seems to be happening with Vice President, former Vice President Biden, where nobody really wants to even, you know, suggest that we should look into the fact that him and his son, you know, flew around on Air Force Two to China. That, you know, two weeks later, he makes this big yeah. billion dollar deal with some of the most wealthy all right, so that was my interview with Victor Davis Hansen. You're listening to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, where Hillsdale meets the nation. We'll be back after this short break, and we'll continue our talk with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, the author of The Case for Trump. Senator Mike Lee tweets out that the president, thank you, President Trump, for withdrawing U.S. military personnel from Syria. Undeclared wars are as unconstitutional as they are unadvisable. Those who disagree with this decision should ask Congress to declare war or otherwise authorize the use of military force. That's Senator Mark Lee, Mike Lee on Twitter. We want to know what you think here over at American View. So give us your thoughts and we'll talk about them next time on the air at American View, WRFH on Twitter or Facebook. Or you can tag me as well at Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D. Let us know what you think. Now we return to our interview with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen as an exclusive interview as part of this American View where Hillsdale meets the nation episode. So... In addition to it being about a power thing, I think, where it is a ruling class versus the middle of America, there's another element of it, the globalist element. The idea that, you know, they almost have an allegiance to this global order, more so to our own nation, which I think can have a lot of long-term effects. Um, Historically speaking as well, as a historian, I'm curious what your insight is on the impact of globalism. If you were talking to a room full of globalists, what would you say to them about the consequences of their ideas? Globalism is a new word for the old internationalists. International was supposed to be a, a positive description. If, I, if you say you're inter, majoring in international relations, that's positive. If you said you were majoring in nationalist relations, that's not good. 
And so they took the vocabulary and they said, if your first loyalty is to the international progressive community, that's a positive idea. And because the coast are traditionally six hours from Asia or eight hours and six, six hours from Europe, there was a natural and, uh, affinity for overseas thinking and people. And after all, that's the coast is where Washington is. It's where Wall Street is. It's where Silicon Valley. It's where Stanford, Harvard, Yale. That's where the elite live. And how it works out is that, especially in the case of the EU, the we're talking about globalism, we're talking about the West, because that's the engine that drives the world, whether it's westernized Japan or now westernized China, but it starts in the West. And it's a very affluent and educated and leisured society compared to past civilization. And they have certain ideas about human nature, that they can change it, that an elite can be kind of appointed as the EU bureaucrats are, and they should have unlimited progressive powers to tell people how to live. Then they look at the United States and they think, wow, this place is a strange place. It had that frontier experience. Yeah. It had this radical individualism. They keep We keep seeing this word liberty and freedom rather than equality and egalitarianism of the French Revolution. American Revolution was not like the French Revolution. And they look at the Bill of Rights, complete free speech, that's a bad idea, that's hate speech. They look at the Second Amendment, these people have guns, they, they're skeptical or they oppose abortion. They don't believe in man-caused global warming can be rectified by massive government intervention in the economy. We, we just can't trust these people. And so our elites think, you know what, I agree with those people. We need to have anti-democratic, uh, benevolent, platonic guardians to tell everybody how to think and how to, to act. We got to get rid of certain embarrassing facets of American life. And so if you can't repeal the Second Amendment, you can tell a guy in rural Michigan, you know what? We're going to put so much pressure through the media, foundations, politics, Hollywood, popular culture on Walmart. They won't sell you any ammunition. Then see what good the Second Amendment is. Or if they want open borders like Europe has, they can say, you know what? We're going to make 500 jurisdictions. And you can have ICE and you can have, in theory, a federal law. But in, within these jurisdictions, we're going to nullify federal law, just like in the Old South, in South Carolina in 1832 or on the wow. eve of the Civil War. So that's where we are right now. Right. Well, you got these big issues, you know, guns being one of them that they were really going after. Open borders, you mentioned as well. Now, that one, I think has some big consequences. I'm, I'm curious though, what do you think? What are, what are the, which one is going to affect the future of the United States or the existence of the United States the most? Um, or maybe, maybe it's both. Well, open borders, Elizabeth Warren said that she thought if a person, she said this yesterday, if a person comes across the border, they should not be detained or arrested. So why do people say that in the context of 10 years ago, Barack Obama ran for president and the idea that he was not a king and he had to obey immigration laws and he deported people. And Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton in 92 ran on his and his campaign that we have to protect the American workers' wages. We got to protect social services for the poor. We can't let a bunch of people come from foreign countries here illegally. What changed? 
The answer is numbers. They flipped electorally when you have 20 million people living here illegally now, according to Yale and MIT, and you have an entire second generation of the last 30 years who are U.S. citizens under our anchor baby law. You've got 30 million people who came in via illegal immigration, or at least their parents did, and their par- and we have 20 million living here, and that's a huge constituency. And so the idea in the democratic thinking is people come from the poorest sections of the world, from rural Mexico and Central America. They need massive social entitlements. They need housing care, educational support, Medi-Cal, et cetera. And that means a bigger government, and that means more workers, and that means more uh, advocates for big government and higher taxes. They're poor. They come here. They see the wealthiest country in the history of of civilization and they think why do they have something that i don't the democratic message steps in says because they're greedy and they manipulate the system but we're going to tax them and give you the money and that message in the democratic mind as i said has changed the electoral college so new mexico is no longer a place for cowboys and tough westerners colorado is not a place that ranchers and cattlemen and oilmen live in. Nevada is not a place of hotels and conservative gamblers. California is not a weird state with a bunch of Central Valley conservatives and retired Reaganites in Orange County. Every one of those states has been flipped by immigration. And they said, you know what? We can do to Texas and Arizona what we did to those states, and we can keep going. And they're trying to change the, the demography of the United States. And when you add in well, we should let felons vote. We should let 16-year-olds vote. It's a reflection that when they don't like the outcome of an election, then they want to change. And they can't change the outcome. They want to change the mechanism under which people are elected. It's, it's a very ambitious uh, menu. It, it's, it involves everything from an, uh, abolishing the Electoral College to direct election of senators, to packing the Supreme Court, to changing how many days you can vote on an election. Wow. The other element of it that, you know, going back to what we were talking about with globalism before, is I do think it impacts the identity that the citizens can have with regards to what does it mean to be an American. If we have open borders, then for many Americans, it can really almost redefine what citizenship means in this country. And uh, I'm curious what you think that, you know, the impact of that can be in the long term. We can only learn from past, you know, empires such as the Roman Empire, what what happened when the citizens no longer took pride in their identity, uh, when that no longer mattered. Yeah, well, I mean, if take, for example, California, 27 percent of the population that resides in California was not born in the United States. That's our largest number in the history of any state. So it means that the state had to step in, it should have, and and induce the melting pot. Here's the traditions of America. Here's the Declaration of Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Gettysburg Address, uh, Roosevelt's speech on the four freedom, and teach the American story. They didn't do that. Instead, they said diversity is wonderful. So on the mundane level, if you're on a California freeway, that means one out of every four drivers is not acquainted very well necessarily with American traffic law. One out of four wasn't born in the United States. 
on a larger level, that means when you're in the store and you talk to somebody, they have no idea because they're from another country. But more importantly, they're not assimilated, integrated, or intermarried in the system. And that weakens the American fabric. And when you have 60 million people here legally and illegally that were not born in the United States, and you're up to 13% of the population, and this is not the 19th century when we're brutally trying to Americanize people, then you're attenuating the social fabric and the idea of citizen. So on the pre-citizen level, citizen is no different than a resident today. Come and go across the border without a passport. It doesn't matter whether you're a citizen or a resident. If you look at uh, the middle class, the middle class is shrinking. That was a bulwark of citizenship, kind of like peasantry in California, two classes, lords and peasants. And then when you look at tr multiculturalism, why are, why are people putting accents on their name? Why are they hyphenating their name? Why are they... Did Elizabeth Warren, who lectured us on white privilege, white privilege, and how pernicious and how white people had all these advantages, then why would she be so stupid, according to her own logic, to fake a Native American identity if she really thought that being Native American meant you were going to live a lifetime of prejudice and victimization and, and uh, oppression? But she didn't believe that, obviously. She thought that if you had a minority identity and you accentuated that, then you could leverage that for special privilege. Excuse Robert that, Francis O'Rourke might agree with that as well. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, uh, Beto, yeah. You know, Roberto, and now he's Beto, and what does that try to mask? So, on the one hand, Beto gives lectures about how he has, how everybody had this toxic white privilege. On the other hand, he adopts the Hispanic name. His father, when he was born, said, I started to nickname him that because I knew he'd have a political career in San Antonio. Wow. So okay, we're almost out of time here. I'm here with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen here. Um, how close would you say the, the country is to uh, this becoming a, a civil war of sorts? Even perhaps it already has in some sense a cold civil war. I mean, is that really a threat that we have to be worried about? Because it seems like a lot of these issues we're talking about well, can be existential. I think I lived through the 60s when I was a young kid, young teen, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then 70s. And the, it's as polarized now as it was then, but we haven't taken yet the next step. We have Antifa, Black Lives Matter, but nobody has said, my anger at the establishment is going to translate into bombing. So for take a year like 1970, I think we had a major bombing every other day in the United States. Wow. Where I teach at the Hoover Institution, the windows were blown out. Uh, when I was a student in 1971 as a freshman, can you imagine go, going to a university today where I went into a class and uh, thugs came in and threw chairs all around the room and they said that the art history class was westernized and they tried to storm the podium and that was commonplace right. do you, do you so that we haven't got that yet but in the 60s people said if you had wire rim glasses and you smoked dope and you had hair long hair and you didn't bathe you had levi's then you were making a statement against the establishment and what's keeping us from that polarization and violence is culturally the music fashion is is still blended and people are much more mellow, at least they have been the last half century. If this continues and we create this antithetical 
culture. So uh, Representative Tlaib from Michigan, of all places, said yesterday she wants to jail cabinet members. AOC's uh, rally the other day, a woman got up and said, it's too late for to save the planet. We have to start eating babies. I saw that. And she didn't disavow it. Yes. She didn't disavow it. She didn't disavow it. If that creates a counterculture and that would lead to violence... And you start to see when Maxine Waters says, get in their faces like Obama did, follow them to the gas station, or Sarah Huckabee Sanders can't eat in a restaurant. If that starts, you'll see a counter-violent reaction to that. Right. But so far, fortunately, we haven't seen people take to the streets like they did in the 60s. And yeah. that, by the way, ruined the left uh, because that led to 12 years of Reagan and Bush. Well, and that's, the, I guess, the next question is, you know, is this anger because this their system is really breaking down? I mean, they, they had power for a while in the Obama administration. They got a, a lot done. And now it seems as if Trump pr- presents a threat to them, which is just making the anger a lot worse. Yeah, I think what happened is two things happened under the Obama administration. Obama said, really, there's not so much affirmative action where a white majority has to make reparations to an for, to a discriminated against victimized uh, group of people who were the descendants of slaves. He rebranded that as diversity. That was a very important but unacknowledged transformation. He said anybody who's not white is in the diversity pool. Suddenly that pool went up to 30, 35%. And that meant you could be a South American aristocrat from... Argentina. You could be from Spain. You could have blue eyes and blonde hair from Brazil. You could be a multimillionaire from Mumbai. Class didn't matter. Prior oppression didn't matter. You could walk across the border from Mexico and immediately be eligible for affirmative action, even though you never suffered any discrimination. And that gave people wild ideas that the so-called white population was doomed it was it was in the middle of the country and then when you add to that uh, arithmetic silicon valley wall street international finance everybody's got a cell phone worldwide 4 trillion dollars of market capitalization and facebook google apple yahoo there was a giddiness during obama we have beaten them down the the united states with open borders is going to be a new not just multiracial, but it's going to be a different culture. And we're going to reject uh, the founders. We're going to reject the Constitution. We're going to meld or weld ourselves with Europe. And the coast is where it's at. And then all of a sudden, Hillary Clinton was supposed to inherit the, this math from Obama and what happened. Uh, minorities in the big cities did not want to come out and vote for a 68-year-old white woman who's a multimillionaire as they did for Obama. And the white working class finally had enough and said, you know what, Trump doesn't sound like McCain or Romney. He's really worried about jobs and industry and and he cares about people in southern Michigan. And so that destroyed everything, every fantasy they had. And now it's now what do we do? There's, you mean these people are still around? They're still powerful? And uh, we're fragmented. And now with minority unemployment at record lows, this nut Trump is trying to peel off our constituencies. And so they're very angry. And they don't know what to do, how to change the system or change people's minds. 
And you have Robert De Niro, everybody thought was a pretty good actor. The last year has just completely flipped out. And you have Hollywood actors and celebrities, Kathy Griffin, Johnny Depp, Snoop Dogg. Should we blow the president up? Cut his head off. No, burn him alive. No, shoot him. No, stab him. You got to remember during the Obama administration, one clown in Missouri wore an Obama mask at a state rodeo. And people were so angry at that. And it wasn't a pejorative mask. They banned him for life for doing that. So we're well beyond that now, and it's getting kind of scary. Such a double standard, and I think we really see that even with these these recent impeachment efforts and the way in which they're accusing the president of somehow using his position for political gain. And you look at some of the things the last administration did, you just can't. can't, can't I mean, it's a psychological condition that that we didn't really put much credence in as projection. You do something and either you feel guilty about it or for strategic purposes, you accuse the other person of what you have done. So you collude with Ukraine in 2006 and you say Trump colluded or you (laughs) leak confidential memos and stuff. You say, well, Trump's team is leaking or you say we've we've obstructed justice in the Hillary Clinton matter. So then Trump is obstructing justice. Or you all during the Clinton period, you say, coup, 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 this impeachment's a coup. And then you say, how dare the Republicans call this a coup? Mm-hmm. And that's where we are now, that the left is sort of projecting what they've done and either to convince themselves it's not too bad or to uh, to to def- deflect scrutiny of what they've done. They accuse other people of doing it. And it's it's kind of strange i mean we see it in the mundane and the irrelevant juicy small at the actors obviously created a career under racially explosive language and provocative separatist ideas and so then he says he's attacked in two in the morning in a liberal neighborhood of chicago by two maga wearing white thugs who happen to be fans of a black tv series and happen to be at that moment carrying bleach and a lynch rope or the Covington kids or the Kavanaugh hearings, or I think this week an African-American family said their daughter's braids were cut off. Right. And so what they're doing is they are racialist and they look at people by their appearance, not they're, they're worried about uh, the color of a person's skin and not the content of their character. And so they know that's not right, but they also know it pays career dividends and this this warped environment so they accuse other people of doing what they do racialists that's that's a new word i haven't heard that one yet we're gonna have to keep that one on the show here dr hansen thank you so much for joining us i think we're out of time all right and that was our interview with dr victor davis hansen he is the author of the case for trump um and he really helps i think give us an idea uh of the history that has led up to these moments, impeachment in the, the House, the proceedings going on right now, and also just some great facts and, you know, the big picture of what's happening today. If you enjoyed this episode of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation, please log on to American View, WRFH on Facebook, where you can check out all of our episodes and our interviews with some of the most prominent Americans in the country. We'll be back here later next week after fall break. Thanks for listening to this edition of American View on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Ben Dietrich, and have a good day.